If you are anyone who is not a you know, right-wing authoritarian, I would say that it does not make sense for you to do anything except vote for Joe Biden in this election and afterwards protest him on day one of his administration. When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Hello, and welcome to Prohibited. For this episode, I sat down with YouTube essayist and political commentator Yusuf Takes, We discuss his latest YouTube video, Is Trump Becoming a Dictator?, where Yusuf argues that there are known, measurable dictatorial tendencies in world leaders. And unlike any other president in American history, he argues, Trump's words and deeds include every single one of them. Yusuf and I explore the potential implications of a Trump re-election, and why he thinks that no matter your political persuasion and policy preferences, a vote for Trump is a vote against the continuation of electoral democracy in the United States. You can find Yusuf on YouTube by searching for Yusuf Takes, Y-U-S-U-F Takes. So let's get to the interview. Thank you for joining me on Prohibited. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott, for having me. It's my pleasure. And I gave the listeners a little bit of a description about the YouTube video essay that we're going to be largely discussing today, and also told them a little bit about what you do. Is there anything that you want to add about who you are, and just what motivates you to do this work before we dive into the questions? Yeah. So in terms of my ideological background, I would say I come from uh, both libertarianism and leftism. Um, But the reason why I made the video was really as, uh, I know this is cliche, but it was really as an American. One of the problems with the conversation around this election and Donald Trump as a personality is that a lot of people, and for for somewhat good reason, I would say, have ascribed any sort of negative coverage of Trump as Trump derangement syndrome or orange man bad. So when critics of Trump describe him as an unprecedented threat to American democracy and the rule of law, conservatives and other Trump defenders often just say, oh, that's just the libs getting mad. So that's really why I made the video, because I believe that there are strong, clear, factual, objective reasons to believe that Trump is, in fact, an unprecedented threat to American democracy and the rule of law. And I wanted to collect all of these pieces of information together so that people who are skeptical of this big claim uh, can understand why this truly is the case. 
And for listeners, there is a link to Yusuf's YouTube channel and the video we're discussing today in the show notes. You can also pause right now and just search for Yusuf Takes on YouTube. It's Y-U-S-U-F. So Yusuf, let's get started on these questions. The, the first one that I want to focus on is in the video, you mentioned that folks tend to believe that Trump is no more of a grave threat to democracy than, say, Obama or Clinton or Bush or even someone like Nixon. And you say that it's a mistake to think this because Trump could destroy electoral democracy as we know it in the United States. But of course, listeners hear every election cycle after every election cycle that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. So why is it true this time? Yeah, I I think the most important thing to point out are objective differences, like irrefutable differences between the circumstances that we face in 2020 and the circumstances that we've ever faced before. Um, so we ha- there are certain factors like hyperpartisanship, like destruction of important norms that prevent authoritarianism that have existed before, but those factors have actually accelerated in recent years. But on top of that, you have a personality like Donald Trump who uh, incites violence in ways that we have never seen before in any other president who flatly refuses to accept electoral defeat. I mean, we can talk more you know, throughout this conversation about what those specific characteristics are, but I just want to be very clear that there are specific, objective, measurable things that we can see that differentiate the current election from previous elections. And as you mentioned, we're going to get to some of those dictatorial characteristics in a moment. But towards the beginning of your video, you say that there are really two different ways, two major different ways that a candidate can be bad for democracy. And that the second one is far more rare in the U.S., but that it's present with Trump. So what are those two general ways of being a bad candidate? And why is that rarer one actually a factor in this election? Yeah, so this kind of comes down to a concept that I discuss in my video a little bit, or at least I tag this concept in my video, which is the difference between substantive justice and procedural justice. And you can kind of see this as the difference between substantive policy, i.e. like what our foreign policy should be, um, where our engagements should be abroad, what kind of domestic policies we should impose with respect to taxation or regulation. That's substantive policy. But then there's procedural justice, right? Procedure being, how do we conduct fair elections? How do we ensure that there are peaceful transitions of power? And the the reason why the second is more rare, you know, or in other words, the reason why we haven't seen attacks on procedural uh, democratic rules as much as we are seeing now is largely because of, a, I would say, a combination of escalating hyperpartisanship that has eventually shielded all accountability um, or close to all accountability and aspects to Trump's personality himself. As, as much as I hate to harp on too much about Orange Man being bad, I think that it's very clear that the combination of narcissism that we see in him um, and uh, delusional thinking lends itself towards uh, dictatorial characteristics. You point out in the video that a lot of other former U.S. presidents have dictatorial characteristics. You cite FDR's internment of Japanese Americans and rejection of Jewish refugees during World War II. And you cite Woodrow Wilson, who actually arrested his political opponents, which I have to admit, I didn't know that until I saw your video. But then you go on to say that we have 
a current president who has many more dictatorial characteristics than any president in U.S. history. So let's play the portion of the video where you name those characteristics and then give examples. We can create a kind of checklist to determine whether an individual head of state has a high likelihood of becoming a dictator. And according to the criteria that we know about, Donald Trump checks off more of these characteristics than any other president in U.S. history. The first one is, does this leader reject the democratic rules of the game? Examples of this include suggesting the need for delaying or canceling elections. He's suggesting the November election could be delayed. He has no staying in power past constitutional limits. We're going to win four more years, and then after that, we'll go for another four years because, you know what? They spied on my campaign. He's now president for life. <laughs> you want to give that a shot someday. And refusing to accept electoral defeat. We're going to win this election. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election, we're going to win this election. Number two, do they deny the legitimacy of political opponents? An example could be describing members of the opposition as evil people who want to destroy the country. Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to destroy you, and they want to destroy our country as we know it. Number three, do they tolerate or encourage violence? Examples include endorsing violence against political opponents. The guards are very gentle with him. He's walking out like big high fives, smiling, laughing. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees, I promise. Trump also I said he may pay legal bills for a man charged with assault after punching a protester at a rally in North Carolina last year. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I would have been out there fighting, folks. I don't know if I would have done well, but I would have been boom, 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 I'll beat that. Praising acts of political violence. If she gets to pick her judges, Nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But Encouraging vigilante mob attacks. This morning, President Trump appeared to excuse or defend the provocative behavior of his supporters while again slamming Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. And platforming politicians who endorse or glorify violence. This is somebody who has called herself a proud Islamophobe. And President Donald Trump actually tweeted congratulating Laura Loomer. You're seeing it right there, saying, Great going, Laura. You have a great chance against. Number four, do they curtail civil liberties? The examples include threatening to take legal action against critics and rival parties. But these people should be indicted, and that includes Obama and it includes Biden. Unless Bill Barr indicts these people for crimes, then uh, we're going to get little satisfaction unless I win, and we'll just have to go because I won't forget. We're going to open up those libel laws. So that when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, we can sue them and win money instead of having no chance of winning because they're totally... Praising repressive measures by other dictators. Oh, I mean, it also is a person that kills journalists, political al I mean, political opponents, yeah. and... Uh, invades countries. And invades countries. Obviously, uh, that uh, it would be a concern, would it not? He's running this country, and at least he's a leader, you know, unlike what we have in this country. And violating the free speech of peaceful protesters. Healing and raising their hands in peaceful demonstration. But then, almost suddenly, U.S. Park and Secret Service police began shoving and hitting. Finally, number five, do they have a cult following? So examples include getting away with lying routinely to your followers. But under no circumstances would Mexico pay for that war. There is no way that Mexico can pay a war like that. Having loyal paramilitaries or armed gangs. 
and of course transforming their entire political party into nothing but a mouthpiece for the dear leader. As the Republican Party platform devolves officially into whatever Trump says it is, here's their statement, quote, whereas the RNC enthusiastically supports President Trump, resolved that the 2020 Republican National Convention will adjourn without adopting a new platform. So wouldn't you agree that Trump satisfies all these conditions? Yeah, and, and just to add on top of those other things, I want to make it very clear. I kind of touched on this in the video, but I want to make it especially clear that the problem is not that all of these things are unique to Trump. Uh, you might, you know, you know, astute listeners might have observed that people have been villainizing their political opponents for a while. Trump was not the first one. People have been curtailing civil liberties for a while. Trump was not the first one. But the combination of all of these characteristics, having a cult following, encouraging violence against political opponents, these aspects are truly unique to Trump. And you look at Democratic researchers from Hannah Arendt to Stephen Levitsky, and you find that when you see a combination of these characteristics, that is when you should truly be afraid of the integrity of the democracy. I want to talk about one comparison that folks make about Trump and Biden and why you think that comparison is wrong. So one of the things that you point out that is very different about these two candidates is that you argue that Biden would actually de-escalate tensions, whereas Trump escalates them. You also argue that Biden has a clear record as a staunch institutionalist, again, as opposed to Trump, who often employs chaos and confusion or just outright lies and corruption in order to undermine democratic institutions. But then you go on to make a distinction between Trump and Biden that we should spend some time unpacking. An argument that you and I have both encountered and no doubt listeners have heard, too, is that it's equally important for Biden to contemn Black Lives Matter and Antifa if voters expect Trump to disavow white supremacy. Why is this wrong? So I, I wanted to bring up this distinction because we keep hearing this false equivalence between Trump and his armed gangs and Biden with respect to BLM and Antifa. I think there are two really crucial differences. One is that, of course, as many people know, the Proud Boys, just as take, taking one example, or the people who marched on Charlottesville were actually part of formal organizations that explicitly supported either white supremacy or other kinds of white nationalist or fascist goals, whereas BLM and Antifa are not formal organizations in the same way. Um, of course, we can talk about how there are differences between the goals. I mean, one of them is protesting against police brutality and the other is trying to uh, intimidate people. Uh, in this case, in, in recent weeks, we've seen intimidate people with respect to uh, polling. But I think the biggest difference between the two is that even if you do consider BLM and Antifa armed gangs, despite their differences um, with organizations like Proud Boys, they don't have the same support for Biden that organizations like the Proud Boys have for Trump. Movements like BLM and Antifa are, are actually very critical of Biden, as you and I both know. Uh, Biden has a horrible history on um, the incarceral state, as we both know. He has pushed for mass incarceration. Um, he has pushed for a whole slew of policies that undermine civil liberties and um, are completely opposed to what BLM advocates for. On the other hand, you have groups like the Proud Boys who are arming themselves, who are open to intimidating voters, 
and who are explicitly and clearly supporting Trump. In fact, one of the most disturbing cases is the case of Oath Keepers, where on Twitter explicitly they said that if Trump is constitutionally removed from office, we will have a civil war. We will instigate a civil war. So I think there's this huge difference then, therefore, between the support that movements like BLM and Antifa have for Biden versus the support that a lot of these extremist right-wing groups have for Trump. And I sort of glossed over the escalation versus de-escalation argument when I asked you this question, but just to hammer the point home, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that Biden gets criticism from the left, from not only from these groups, but from voters, um, admittedly voters like me. And I think that that really points to the fact that Biden has built a political career on being a centrist, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of politics. Uh, In fact, he was criticized by some of his opponents during the Democratic primary for his willingness to speak favorably about Republicans that he had worked with in the Senate throughout his career. But you are listening to Prohibited. Before we continue with Yusuf, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about one of Prohibited's season two advocacy sponsors whose support makes this show possible. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by MCBA, the Minority Cannabis Business Association, a nonprofit business league who serves minority cannabis entrepreneurs, workers, patients, and consumers. MCBA's primary mission is to create an equitable cannabis industry through the economic empowerment of communities of color who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. MCBA leads a network of cannabis entrepreneurs and activists who engage directly with policymakers to advocate for fair implementation and enforcement of sensible cannabis policies. Do you think we should prioritize establishing an equitable cannabis industry? Then you can harness the power of MCBA's network to connect cannabis enthusiasts of color to the resources and businesses that can assist them. Support MCBA by joining their growing network of entrepreneurs and activists or become a donor. For more information, contact MCBA today at info at minoritycannabis.org or visit their website at minoritycannabis.org. You can support the Minority Cannabis Industry Association today. Welcome back to Prohibited. Yusuf, I agreed with a lot of the content of your video, but I want to focus a little bit on a critique or two that I have about the video. But first, for this segment, I want to dig into why you think that the Constitution itself can't save us from President Trump even if he gets reelected. I mean, doesn't the U.S. Constitution have mechanisms to protect against abuses of power? Doesn't our democracy have guardrails that prevent a slide into despotism that you're warning us about? Yeah, and this is actually, I think, one of the most important points um, in the entire video. If you want to learn more about this, I would say pick up the book How Democracies Die by Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky. Again, that's How Democracies Die. But they basically explain how people take for granted the fact that constitutions are only as good as the norms that surround them. They're only as good as the people and the, the political culture that operates within that constitution. Um, and I gave an example in the video of we can imagine if you have a really hyperpartisan atmosphere, then um, and then the a certain party, a certain political party controls all the courts, all the legislatures and the presidency. And then the president disobeys the constitution by, say, throwing protesters into unmarked vans, hypothetically, then what's going to happen in that case? If people are more committed to supporting their party and their ideology 
than they are to the basic rules of the game, then those rules will not be enforced. Constitutions don't have magical powers. They actually have to rely on political actors being willing to enforce certain norms. So that's the main reason why I would say the Constitution is not enough to stop Trump. You argue that U.S. democratic institutions may have already failed us. Why do you think so? I think that there are two ways of looking at this. I think you can look at, first of all, which I didn't really talk that much in the video about, but which I'm happy to talk more about here, the the fact that the United States is at best a flawed democracy, especially since uh, recent years when the Voting Rights Act has been largely gutted by not only the famous voter ID laws, but also by state governments in GOP-dominated states purging voter rolls, especially of people of color, we see that we actually do not have the perfect democracy that we'd like to believe we have. But the second thing is that U.S. institutions, however democratic we want to describe them as, have obviously failed before. Um, They have failed um, in recent years to stop political actors from, for example, starting wars or at least being held accountable for starting wars on the basis of lies. We saw this especially with the 2003-2002 invasion of Iraq. So before we keep going, I just want to address something you said before the break. I just want to, uh, again, as you said, hammer this point home about Biden being more of a de-escalatory figure. I will admit I am very, I've long been very skeptical of civility politics. I think civility politics is often an excuse for not holding people accountable. But in recent months, even, I have come to realize that civility, to some extent, plays a crucial role in holding a country together. And one thing that terrifies me, one reason why I made the video is because it's clear to me now that more and more people are polarized to the point of being willing to use violence to support their political goals. So uh, in a time where 30 plus percent of people in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party believe that political violence is justified to achieve their uh, goals, I think that de-escalation should actually take a huge, huge priority in terms of who we vote for in November and also the aftermath of this election. Thank you for that. I agree with everything you just said. But of course, even you and I don't always agree. And so there's a couple of things from the video that I want to either quibble with or critique. And let's go with the first one. Um, I think that your video glossed over the fact that the president was impeached by the House of Representatives and that about half of the U.S. Senate, so all of the Democrats and one Republican, voted to convict him and remove him from office. And I think that ignoring this in the video was a missed opportunity to demonstrate one of your arguments, which is that Trump has essentially co-opted one of the two major political parties and turned it into a propaganda mouthpiece. So why did you decide not to touch impeachment when you did the video? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I thought about talking about impeachment in the video, but it was largely a strategic move to not include it. I think it is one of the great tragedies of our political era, personally, that both the Mueller investigation and the Ukraine investigation were uh, were covered in such a partisan manner that the country could not agree on even the basic facts. Um, There were basic facts in both of those cases, in the Mueller report, in the case of, um, of 
the obstruction of justice that Trump committed when he instructed to both fire Comey and lie to the public about it. And then with respect to the Ukraine investigation, when his own people, Gordon Sondland and others, said that Trump indicated a sort of quid pro quo agreement that he later denied, right? So those things being true, I agree. However, the fact that those investigations were covered in such a partisan way, I think means that the public uh, who disagrees that Trump should have been impeached disagree quite strongly and actually seem to believe that those impeachment hearings were just a ploy to try to orchestrate a coup against Trump. For those people, I didn't think it would be particularly productive to drag the conversation back to impeachment. I thought that it would be much more productive to point to, again, clear, objective, demonstrable ways that Trump differentiates from Biden with respect to, again, accepting electoral defeat, calling for political violence against his enemies, having armed gangs, etc. I think you're probably right about the fact that not only in terms of the audience that you're trying to reach, but just for anyone who's listening to the video, it's more. it was more effective for you to look at the election that is upon us rather than looking back at impeachment. But I'm glad to hear that we agree, um, you know, with the outcomes of the process and, and how that lends itself to, to demonstrating very clearly the partisan nature and the hyper-partisan nature of our politics in the United States right now, which is a great segue to the next question because... I want to criticize the hyperpolarization analysis that you give in the video. <laughs> so bear with me here, Yusuf, because this is a long, if, if it's even a question, it's very long. Um, I, I agree with your premise, but I think that you are overlooking one thing. So we agree that American democracy is in a state of hyperpolarization. I think there's no doubt about that. And arguably, this polarization is as intense as almost any other time in the nation's history. I also agree with you that political polarization is inherently theatrical. You take um, a few moments in the video to point this out and demonstrate that party leaders will fail to hold their political opponents accountable for their overreaches of power because they want to keep that power if and when they gain the electoral upper hand. One very easy example to point to is the state of war that we found ourselves in under President Bush and the amount of criticism he received from yeah. not only the left, but like the political left, right, the political establishment that was very much yeah. largely silent under the Obama administration. We were bombing, I think, seven countries or something to that effect. Yeah, that's right. But I think the general analysis of political polarization that you're drawing from tends to have a blind spot. And I, I would love to hear what you think about it. So one one could point to the current political environment and demonstrate that for decades, there's been a sorting uh, of political society into the two major political parties, which promotes orthodoxy and, and basically a litmus test for party participation. So for example, it's very rare to find, say, a pro-abortion rights conservative or a progressive who supports stand-your-ground laws, although there may be some of both. There are many other examples we could point to. But let's say, for example, in the 1950s, there were blue dog Democrats in the South who were much more conservative than moderate or even liberal Republicans. And then conversely, there were moderate Republicans who voted farther to the left in Congress than centrist Democrats. So in short, there was some overlap of the two major political parties in terms of where they stood on issues, and today there largely isn't. So while I think this is true, I think it overlooks the following. That overlapping of the parties in Congress, say in the 1950s, consisted of almost exclusively wealthy, land-owning, white, presumably heterosexual men. So Yusuf, is it possible then 
that the country's not, in fact, more polarized now than it has been in the past, but simply that as marginalized groups have gained more power and representation over time, the existing polarization that was already there simply matters more because it's now reflected in our political institutions, whereas it may not have been in the past. Um, What do you think about this critique? Yeah, I, I really love this question because I think it gets at something that is true, which is that clearly prior to the civil rights era, there was a lot more reconciliation. There's a lot less polarization than there was after the civil rights era, or at least apparent polarization, as you would say. I would argue that there is truth to the idea that there actually was less polarization, but it did actually relate to the civil rights era. Again, um, I would recommend everyone to read the book How Democracies Die, but they talk about how the civil rights era actually um, resulted in more polarization because the, reconcil- the, the price of that reconciliation era between, let's say, 1875 and 1965, the price of that was not having a democracy, really. Not having a democracy that really represented the voices of black people, particularly in the South. Um, the reason why they were able to have such reconciliation is because they both agreed, or at least they both tacitly allowed that uh, suppression to happen. Once that uh, started to change in this in the civil rights era, um, you saw the you know the the racially motivated alteration of our political system, uh, the so-called switching of the political parties. So it is true that. Um, apparent polarization was less before the civil rights era, but I would argue that it, it, it is real, that there was less polarization among the political elites, and that once you introduced more black voters to the political system, then uh, on a racial basis, people began to, uh, like, for example, Republicans in the South voted all along racial lines. As you know, like, law and order was, code was really a dog whistle against black people. Um, and, and the evidence that we, you, you can say, oh, that's all well and good. That's kind of unfalsifiable in a way. But actually, we do see evidence, at least I would say there's very robust evidence um, from Pew. You can Google this, that we have seen in the past few decades since the civil rights uh, legislation was passed, since the civil rights era began in the 1960s, we have seen polarization actually increase over time since then. We have seen polling data where people have been asked questions like, who would you rather have your child marry? Someone from a different religion or someone from a different party? And we've seen those numbers change over time. We've seen people increasingly saying, no, I'd rather have someone, I'd rather have my Jewish daughter marry a Christian man than have her marry a Republican, right? So I think there, there's pretty robust polling data that supports the general idea. However, again, I'll reiterate that there is truth to what you're saying in terms of the relationship between disenfranchisement and polarization. Unfortunately, the price of not being so polarized was in, you know, again, from 1875 to 1965 was disenfranchisement. Thank you for all of that. It's possible that we don't really have a disagreement here, but one thing I will pin down for listeners is I think it's very easy to understate how important those battle lines post civil the civil rights movement in terms of the the battle lines that have been drawn around race relations post the civil rights movement. I don't think you can overstate how important that is because I think that political realignment that happened 
you know, approximately 50, 55 years ago, that that is still one of the major factors when it comes to, you know, not only our party affiliation and, and political alignment today, but just what is in the body politic in the United States still stems from that conflict. And, you know, I wish I knew what the answer was because I don't think that we're going to be able to move forward, um, you know, as a political society until we deal with the reconciliation that needs to happen around race relations in the United States. And as you're pointing out repeatedly through the video and in this interview, Donald Trump is really taking us in the opposite direction um, in terms of the reconciliation that we've been waiting to have happen, you know, since my parents were, were children. Yeah. And I just want to say real quick that the 2016 election, at least the, I would say the GOP primaries uh, for the 2016 election largely proved the point that you're making. Um, we've seen this uneasy alliance or, you know, that putting it charitably, but the allegedly uneasy alliance between um, people who are of a white nationalist persuasion in the GOP and people who are what you might call principled conservatives, uh, people who are, you know, conservatarian, who genuinely do have different con- concepts of you know, how the, the extent to which government should be limited, regulation, taxation, which I view personally as good faith disagreements. Um, but you saw in 2016 that it exposed this underbelly, this undercurrent of white nationalist attitudes in the Republican Party. And what, you, what we've seen is the total rejection, even the nominal rejection, really, of so-called principled conservatism in favor of what we clearly see as to put it lightly, right-wing populism. And Yusuf, I know that you're on the left, as you stated uh, earlier in the interview. You also identify as a libertarian, though. And so I just wanted to say, by nature of of the advocacy and activism work that I do, and I know the same is true for you, since 2016 especially, I have really seen a sorting among my professional and personal contacts on the right, whether they be libertarians, whether they be conservatives. I've really seen a sorting between the people who are willing to reject white nationalism, despite maybe agreeing with other conservatives on economic issues, and then the people who aren't willing to do that. And I think that that has been very stark because I, you know, I can think of a, a few dozen activists on the right that I've interacted with on drug policy reform issues, in, you know, over the past decade that I no longer am in contact with because they were not willing to reject white nationalism, whereas there seems to be another group that has. Is there anything you want to say about that sort of internal conflict among libertarians and among the, the right generally as you see it? Yeah, um, I, I just think that um, if libertarians and others who might identify as being on the right or just um, even centrist perhaps, um, if they don't strongly reject the sort of white nationalism that we're talking about, then they're going to lose. They kind of see it, in my opinion, as a winning strategy right now because it's a really good way of motivating uh, angry, scared voters who are particularly white voters who are scared that they're going to lose their racial majority. In fact, polls show that when you ask white voters about their attitudes on immigration, Um, Their attitudes change based on whether or not you tell them that white people might become a minority. Um, But unfortunately, I would say that they're really, really shooting themselves in the foot if they believe that continuing to support white nationalists or even not fully condemn white nationalist policies will be beneficial, beneficial to them. 
One other quick thing that I want to point out is, especially with respect to immigration, I think there's this huge misconception. People have this idea that increased immigration inherently helps Democrats because for whatever reason, if you're from outside of America, you're going to just support Democrats no matter what, despite the fact that there are plenty of social conservatives among uh, Hispanic communities. And I think the mistake that they're making is that they're not realizing that these groups have preferred Democrats precisely because they have been less hostile to immigration. So if Republicans and Libertarians were to become less hostile to immigration, there is actually no evidence to suggest that those voters would continue to be more favorable to Democrats. And there's robust research demonstrating that point. You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue, let's take a quick break so I can tell you how you can support the show. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by listeners like you. This program is an all-volunteer project, and our team of volunteers donate their time, energy, and money to make this show possible. From equipment, to building and maintaining the website, to curating content, we rely on listeners like you to keep the lights on. For as little as $1 per month, you can support our work directly. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash prohibited. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Prohibited. Once again, visit our website at prohibitedpodcast.com and click on the Support Us tab. Thanks for the support. We can't do it without you. Yusuf, I share your concern that dangerously high civil unrest leading up to and after the election is a very real possibility, no matter who wins. And in fact, civil unrest is already upon us and has been throughout much of 2020. How do the present circumstances contribute to potential escalating civil unrest? And how do you think either a Trump win or a Biden win could affect those circumstances? So first of all, I want to not mince words. Um, I think that when we say dangerously high civil unrest, we are really referring to the possibility of something that could resemble a civil war. Uh, I think that people really underestimate that possibility because they imagine civil war in the United States to resemble the first civil war if it happened again, when in reality it would be much closer to what we saw in, say, the Syrian civil war, where you have 15 different militias with different ideologies, all killing each other and the government. So if anyone is doubtful about the possibility of civil war in the United States, I would ask them to listen to the podcast, It Could Happen Here, which was made in 2019, and just reflect on how much they were able to predict. Moving forward with the question about civil unrest in 2020, Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, I kind of glossed over this for a bit, but there was recently a poll showing that even in the past few months, and especially the past two or three years, the percentage of Americans in both parties who believe that political violence is a justifiable way to achieve their ends has increased. And now in both parties, it's above 30%. Frankly, this should terrify us. It does not take a high percentage of a population to start a really terrible civil conflict. Um, So I think that many people recognize that war is hell, and we have to double down on that and say that civil war would be hell as well, and that if anybody is operating under the delusional fantasy that they can 
win with a high degree of certainty in any sort of violent conflict, I would really urge them to take a deep breath, get off social media for five days and really consider what they're doing because unimaginably terrible consequences could come from that. I think I agree with you on all of that. And for listeners, I hope you don't mind me revealing, Yusuf, that you live in the Washington, D.C. area, too. Listeners here know that I live in Maryland, right outside of D.C. And one of the things I've been thinking about in recent weeks is what's going to happen on election night? What's going to happen in the days following the election, especially if Biden loses? Is there going to be... I mean, it seems to me like no matter what the results of the election are on election night and then in the days and weeks following, there are going to be huge crowds outside of the White House, either celebrating or protesting or both. And I just am really worried about what that looks like. But I want you to focus in on the second part of that question, too. I mean, how do you think the present circumstances contribute to this potential escalation of civil unrest we're talking about? And do you think it looks different if Trump wins as opposed to if Biden wins? Absolutely. It absolutely looks different. And we need to look no further than to the difference between the two candidates in the following way. Donald Trump has repeatedly and consistently called for acts of violence against his political opponents. He made a joke about um, Second Amendment supporters shooting or killing judges who Hillary Clinton might have appointed. But not only that, he encouraged his supporters to punch and attack people who protested his rallies, even when they were being completely peaceful. He even said, in the good old days, there used to be more consequences to protesters and they would be sent out on a stretcher, which in my mind obviously evokes imagery of people who were bloodied and even killed in the struggle for black liberation in the 1960s. So I think it's very, very obvious that Donald Trump is someone who thrives off of violence, thrives off of chaos, whereas Joe Biden, I honestly, if someone can point me to an example of Joe Biden telling his supporters to go after Trump supporters in a violent way, I'll take down my video. I mean, that's how confident I am that he's never said anything like that. Not because he's some great, amazing guy, but because, again, his whole shtick is civility politics. If there's any principle that he has, I don't even know how many principles he truly holds, but I think one of the key principles that he holds is civility. So I think there's a huge difference, a very obvious difference, between how a president who is in control of the army, who is in control of the intelligence community ultimately, how they would respond to unrest as President Trump versus President Biden. But I, I have to say I agree with you that I do think that unrest, unfortunately, is probably going to happen no matter what. I think the best hope that we have then, the whole, the, the whole point of my video was to say, clearly Biden would be less chaotic than Trump. And for all the reasons I listed, he is more committed to democracy than Trump. So there's that. The other factor is how do we prevent election chaos? How, we, how do we prevent election unrest? And I think the only way to do that, how do, at least how we can limit it, is for Biden to win a sweeping victory. He needs to win a victory that leaves no question that he was the rightful victor of this entire race. So he doesn't need to just win by one or two swing states. He needs a clean sweep of most of the swing states. And I do think that there would still be violence in that case. I think that QAnon, for example, is still primed to believe that he is part of some satanic child pedophile cult. But I think the best we can hope for 
is that the violence would be limited to the 40 days between the election and the inauguration. And I think the only way to do that um, with some assuredness is for Biden to win a large victory. I think you're right about that. And you pointed to some very concrete examples of Trump either inciting violence or um, promoting violence among his supporters. And to give another more recent example that's very timely was the recent plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. I can only imagine, Yusuf, how much Trump's supporters and, and indeed the Trump administration itself and the president himself would respond if there were a dozen or so Antifa or Black Lives Matter protesters that had plotted to kidnap put on trial and execute a Republican governor. I mean, I just think the response would be so much different. And then conversely, um, you know, as, as you're pointing out, I think Joe Biden would be the first person in line to condemn those actions. Right. And just a couple of days ago at the time of this recording, President Trump at a rally said, well, I, I guess someone threatened this governor. Right. And it's like, no, it's not. Maybe someone threatened this governor. It's 13 people have been indicted and are in, in jail. Actually, coincidentally, I just read today that one of them has been released on $10,000 bond. But the point is, like, this happened. People are in jail for it. And the fact that he's not even willing to condemn that, I think, is very telling of everything that you're describing. Well, I mean, it, it goes beyond that. He even encouraged his supporters to chant, lock her up. Mm, that's right. After a plot, after a plot to have a, a vigilante attack and a, a bogus trial of a governor, he called for her to be locked up. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, again, it's like, is that a direct, clear incitement of violence? No, but I think there, there's absolutely zero question in any honest, reasonable person's mind that that is the huge distinction between the way that Trump treats chaos and unrest and the way that Biden treats chaos and unrest. Well, Yusuf, I think listeners will be able to tell very clearly that you and I either already have or plan to vote for Joe Biden in this election and that we encourage anyone listening to this podcast to do so for all of the reasons that we've already covered. But one thing that I think is also true of both of us is that starting on January 21st, 2021, we will both be the first in line to criticize uh, a Biden-Harris administration on policies that we disagree with them on, whether it be neoliberal economic policies to um, warmongering that tends to happen when the Democratic establishment is in power to any number of other issues, the drug war and Biden and Harris's uh, history on, on those issues. So I just wanted to say for listeners, please do the right thing um, on Election Day or if you're voting early, please do the right thing. But that doesn't mean that we don't think um, that you shouldn't be critical of the Biden administration in the event that they win the election, because I know I and Yusuf certainly will be. Yusuf, as we start to wind down the interview, is there anything that you would like to say to third-party voters or non-voters or anyone else who may be unsure whether or not it's the right thing to do to vote for Joe Biden in this election? Yeah, well, I, I definitely want to talk at least briefly about third-party voters and non-voters, um, or at least people who might be apathetic in this election. I want to be very clear, and I think that whether it's, I would encourage you to watch the video that I release. I would encourage you, of course, to listen to this conversation. I hope it's very clear by this point that there is a real possibility that limited government, democracy, etc., as we know it, is under attack. I just want to make it also very clear as a corollary to that, that any sort of third party is not going to have a chance 
if there is a consolidated right-wing quasi-dictatorship or if, um, if Trump wins another term. In other words, there's going to be a lot of unrest if Trump wins. There's going to be a huge crackdown on that unrest. I would argue likely unprecedented crackdown. Trump is going to try to do whatever he can to arrest his political opponents. If you think that that is the atmosphere for your third party to take off, you are sorely mistaken. And I would say that a vote for Biden again, as you put it, is not an endorsement of all the policies. All it is, is a recognition that a Biden victory is vastly better for the country than a Trump victory. So again, if you are anyone who is not a you know, right-wing authoritarian, I would say that it does not make sense for you to do anything except vote for Joe Biden in this election and afterwards protest him on day one of his administration. Yusuf, there's a lot of polling data, and I got to say, frankly, things look pretty good for Joe Biden at this moment in time. Is, is it a mistake for me to feel complacent about that? Because the common wisdom among the political punditry class and, and on social media and in the general mainstream media seems to be that there's no path to victory for Trump in this election. What do you think of that, uh, that analysis? Yeah, I think that the idea that Trump cannot win at this point is totally off base, uh, especially with Amy Coney Barrett's recent confirmation to the Supreme Court, which will help him with legal challenges. And I will say that I think Biden has more paths to victory than Trump does. But I, I still think that Trump's in the game. He he still has a very clear path to victory at this point. Uh, Florida is not essential to a Biden victory, but it is essential to a Trump victory. And according to forecasters like 538, he has about a one third chance of winning in Florida. But here's the catch. If Trump is able to win Florida, the outcomes of other states are actually correlated So if Trump wins Florida, his odds all of a sudden shoot up from somewhere around 10% to somewhere around 45%. But one thing I I think is really important to do is to guard against any sort of complacency. There's absolutely a path to victory for Trump. All he has to do is outperform polls in like three swing states and hold on to um, like some of the states that have historically always gone red, like Georgia and Texas and North Carolina. All he has to do is just hold on to places like that, add on Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and he wins the election. And those states are not that far off in terms of polling between like Biden's lead now versus Clinton's lead in 2016. So I, I think that partly, I think complacency is part of the reason why people are saying, oh, you know, I don't want to vote for Biden. I want to vote for my preferred third party candidate because he's probably going to win anyway. Like, no. Um, He is absolutely not guaranteed to win. And even if he is, he doesn't just need to win by a small margin. He needs to win by a very clear margin. Yusuf, I always close my interviews by asking my guests the following question. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about in this interview today? Yeah, I think think there are a couple points that I wanted to make um, about just like how we should treat the potential of dictatorship. Um, One of the key points that I make in my video is that it it does not have to be a high probability that dictatorship will happen for you to be very, very, very scared about it. Similarly, if someone loads a 
single bullet into a six-shot revolver and points it at your head and tries to pull the trigger, you should not be comforted by the 83% chance that you won't die. Um, I would say that dangerously high civil unrest, i.e. civil war, and the collapse of all of our democratic institutions is such a terrible consequence that even if there's like a 20% chance or a 10% chance of it happening, we should be we should do every single thing we can to prevent that from happening. I think there's this idea, and it's a very dangerous idea that, oh well, Trump is not already at the point where he is, you know, suspending Congress or doing things that are just very, very obviously overtly dictatorial, although he's done a lot of things that have hinted at some of those things. But he hasn't actually done those things yet. So isn't it fear-mongering to say, oh, Trump's a dictator. Oh, like this is, you know, Orange Man is, is the worst president in history. I don't think it is. And the reason why is because the whole point of guarding ourselves against dictatorship is, first of all, we have to realize, like, we have to realize that the task of, pre- of preserving our democracy or our limited government cannot be relied on a 200 plus year old piece of text like the constitution. We need people to preserve those institutions ourselves. And the other thing is that we need to guard ourselves against threats to those institutions before it's obvious that they are about to become a dictator, right? Like if we just waited until Trump, for example, suspended Congress, I'm just using a a very obvious, clear example that's probably not going to happen. But if we waited until he did something overtly very dictatorial, it would already be too late by that point. So the best we can do is identify, well, what are the characteristics that we see in dictators if we look throughout history? And luckily, there have been researchers in democracy who have asked this question and have found certain characteristics. Um, And those are the characteristics that I decided to focus the most on in my video. I understand, I really, really understand the skepticism that people have when they hear orange man bad, Trump has done all these terrible things. I get it, like, I get it because those people are usually the kinds of people who have just ignored all the horrible things Obama did, ignored the horrible things that Biden did, the sort of people who said, oh, let's just, ha- if we if Hillary Clinton won, we would be having brunch right now. I get it, that's terrible. But that does not itself mean that Trump is not a unique threat to democracy. There are, like we keep saying, objective things that we can look to to show that he really actually is as bad or even worse than people at large think that he is. Yusuf, it's been a pleasure. I hope that everyone listening to this podcast will go and watch and share your video on YouTube. And as you say towards the end of the video, the most important thing people can do is to understand the arguments that you're making in that video and to share them with others, particularly if they don't plan on voting or if they plan to vote third party or if they plan to vote for President Trump. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing and the way that you weaved together all these different pieces um, is just oh so impressive and vitally important for this moment. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott, for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Our editor is Chris Harris. Our music is by KCAP. Our webmaster is Ricardo Amaya. And I'm your host, Scott Cecil. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com prohibited and share it with your friends and family. 
This podcast is a production of Prohibited Media. You can find a full archive of our episodes at our website at prohibitedpodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you have ideas or feedback for the show, feel free to send us an email at prohibitedpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, no matter how prohibition impacts your life and the lives of those around you, you're still free to think for yourself. And we hope we've given you something to think about today. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you next time.